If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to John chapter 1. We've uh, been there now for all of the Sundays in December, John chapter 1. And as we come to God's Word, as God's Word comes to us, let's uh, go before the Lord once again and ask for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word for how you have preserved your word and provided your word for your people. Father, it's easy to think that we know the way. It's easy for us to think that in and of ourselves we have the answers. But, oh, Father, we need guidance and direction from the outside. We need um, We need your revelation. And so, Father, would you be pleased to open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word this morning, that we would know what we are to believe about you and also what duty you ask of your people. And as we do, Father, what you've called us to do, help us to do it in a humble reliance upon Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. There are a few systems that we cannot live without. Children, can you think with me for a moment? What systems can we not live without? How about our nervous system? How about our circulatory system? How about our respiratory system? I guarantee that if those systems stop working, stop functioning, you and I will no longer be alive. And also there's another system, at least for the last few years, that I think is almost necessary for survival. You guys know what that is, right? The global positioning system, also known as GPS. I knew it in the Navy because we were using GPS to help navigate, and now I can do that with my something in my pocket. It's amazing. The system that was and I signed for it, $1.2 million, a little part, is now, what, very inexpensive, relatively, a GPS. But, but I think there's an even more basic system uh, that we all have to deal with, and that's the GMS. The GMS, the Guilt Management System. I want to ask a question, and it's a serious question right now on this last Sunday of 2019. How do you deal with your guilt? How do you manage your guilt? Now, you may be thinking, I'm not guilty. Okay, say for hypothetical purposes, you you really aren't guilty, but you know That you may think that, well, I'm not guilty, but so-and-so is guilty. And so, aha, there is such a thing as guilt. What is going to be, how how is guilt going to be dealt with? Well, if it's the other person, they need to pay, right? They need to be punished. They need to acknowledge what they did was wrong. But again, how do you deal with your guilt? I think there are probably two basic ways that all of us address guilt deal with guilt, uh, manage guilt. Uh, One is we escape or we try to escape from guilt. You know, we run away. We deny. 
We will do anything and everything to forget about it, to just make it go away. So escape is one basic way to deal with guilt. The other is to atone for guilt, to to make it right. And how do we do that? To, to, To do good, to be very disciplined, to work hard, to achieve, and even... We have a perverse way of taking our own suffering and saying, I deserve it. I'm paying for it. So there's two basic ways. We either try to escape from guilt or we rather atone from guilt. We make up for it somehow. However, it's not that we can't live without a guilt management system, the GMS. Rather, we can't live with a guilt management system. You see, God has provided not a system, but rather a person, not to manage guilt, but rather to eliminate guilt, to fully and finally deal with the problem, the universal problem, the every human problem of guilt once and for all, to fully and finally deal with guilt. And John the Baptist makes this known in another stunning announcement that we find in John 1. So we've been in John's gospel. Remember Matthew and Luke trace um, uh, Jesus all the way back through uh, one uh, Abraham and the other uh, to, to Adam And Mark's gospel begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. But as you know, those of you that have been here for the past few weeks, John goes behind the scenes. He goes to eternity past. And we've been looking at the prologue for the last four weeks. And whereas the rest of John is about Jesus' earthly ministry, the prologue we saw was about his eternal identity. We saw that Jesus is from the beginning. And Jesus is the light and the life. We saw that Jesus comes into the world, and last week we saw that Jesus makes God known. We saw in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw in verse 18 that he has made God known. A stunning announcement. But this announcement, as we saw, is stunning and life-giving only to people who have seen his glory and who have received his grace. Otherwise, it's just ho-hum, boring, next. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, so what? No, my friends, that is stunning to people who have seen his glory and who have received his grace. You can sum up the entire prologue, the first 18 verses of John's gospel. Jesus, who was from the beginning, comes into the world to make God known. Join with me now as I read beginning in verse 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, 
I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Here in verses 19 through 34 is a transition from a description of Jesus' eternal identity to his earthly ministry. And as we begin, we need to make a few comments about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet. Even though, children, he shows up in the pages of the New Testament, John the Baptizer is the last Old Testament prophet. He's the last one who announces the coming arrival of the promised one. And John, the Baptist or the baptizer, is a witness. Notice how we read, he saw, I saw, I have seen. Not in a vision, he saw, he has seen. He's giving truthful testimony. Um, what is often the mark of false testimony uh, outside and even within the church? Have you noticed that false teachers talk a lot about who? Themselves. They're self-centered. They're pretentious. They're saying, I've got some knowledge that you need. And I this and I that. And did you notice John? Every time he's questioned, I am not. I'm not that one. No, I'm not the coming Elijah. I'm not the new prophet. No, in fact, the one who's coming, who's greater than me because he was before me, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. John would later say that, that he must decrease, but Christ must increase. This is the man who's the last Old Testament prophet. Truthful testimony. He's a witness. And you see how he ends up, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Because you remember at the end of John, the apostle John says, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And we see that already taking place in these early Verses in John 1. 
Well, in this second stunning announcement in John 1, John the Baptist tells us three things, and the outline didn't come until after it went to print, but here it is. Who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and how someone should respond to who Jesus is and what he came to do. In other words, how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Now, does that outline sound familiar? You bet. It comes from our shorter the shortest catechism. Remember when we looked at Mark's gospel, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? And here it is as well. We'll see that this is exactly what John the Baptist is doing and why John the apostle is including this in his first chapter. Who is Jesus? Look with me again at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. He did not say, Behold, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Behold, this is this man who's before me and greater than me. No, he, he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, the original hearers, and indeed, the original readers of John's gospel, uh, what would they think when they heard Lamb of God? Well, they would probably think Passover lamb. Exodus 12. Remember when God was striking down the firstborn in Egypt, but God's people sacrificed a lamb, put blood on the doorpost, and the angel of uh, wrath or vengeance or destruction passed by those homes that were marked with the blood of the lamb. So a, a faithful Jew would hear lamb of God and they would think, yes, rescue, deliverance, exodus. A faithful Jew would also think, oh yeah, lamb of God, every day in the temple, the sacrifices, daily sacrifices. Um, when I speak at uh, Fairhaven Rescue Mission, we often sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I always find it remarkable that, that, um, that when paramedics and first responders get to a scene of an accident, a crime, somebody's hurt, they put on gloves, right? They don't want to, to touch blood. And yet, in the temple is, is blood, blood, blood of animals, animal sacrifice flowing daily. Again, later, you can see that it's Jesus' blood that cleanses the daily sacrifices. That's what they would be thinking. And then they're familiar with Isaiah, the prophet, who speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord, Isaiah 53. And, and they, they, they remember this lamb that, that went to its shearers silent, like a lamb, this suffering servant that didn't open his mouth, but suffered like a lamb. So what about readers now? What about hearers now? Behold the Lamb of God. You think of all those things, the Passover lamb, the, the daily sacrifice at the temple, the, the suffering and silent lamb. But we have the completed scriptures. We have the New Testament witness. We have Paul writing in Corinthians, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We have Peter saying, you were ransomed. 
with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then we readers, we hearers now, we go to the book of Revelation and oh my, the Lamb of God, the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb who is on the throne, the Lamb who is worshipped, the Lamb, and don't miss this, the Lamb who is a warrior. The Lamb who is a warrior, the host of the supper, the Lamb, the light. If you want a good Sunday afternoon Bible reading exercise, read the book of Revelation and find all the references to the Lamb. You see, in Genesis 22, there's the Lamb. And in the book of Revelation, there is the Lamb. It's a theme. It's a picture. It helps us understand the person and work of Christ running through the scriptures. Now in verse 36, if you skip down to verse 36, you will see him say once again, behold the Lamb of God. But here in verse 29, John the Baptist goes on to say not only who Jesus is, but what Jesus came to do. What did Jesus come to do? It's a great question to ask and the scriptures provide a lot of answers here. He came to take away the sin of the world. Now, to the original or first readers, the hearers, what would they think? Well, they would, of course, think about the sacrificial system. God had made it clear that there was a means by which you could, as it were, temporarily deal with guilt. The whole sacrificial system. Read Leviticus and you will see, you will see all that God outlined and provided for people to deal with guilt, the sacrificial system, to take away the sin of the world. Now, readers now, you and I, what would we, what would we think when we hear, who takes away the sin of the world? Well, we think of the work of Christ and we think of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system that points forward to his once and for all sacrifice that we read about in Hebrews 10. The whole Old Testament system, it wasn't a waste of time, it wasn't a mistake, it rather pointed forward, recognizing that the blood of bulls and goats really couldn't take away sin, but there was coming the one who could and would. In Mark 10, we read that Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give his life, to to give his life as a sacrifice for sin, as a ransom for many. You know, it's amazing to see the connections between the Gospel of John and and 1 John. Just a cursory reading of 1 John and you see all the connections In 1 John 2, 2, he, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, the one who exhausts the wrath of God in our place and on our behalf. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, sufficient for all, but efficient for those who trust in Jesus. 
In 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice that would absorb the wrath of God in our place and on our behalf. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes, in him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He takes away, he removes, he deals with Fully and finally, the sin. The sin, and notice it's sin, not sins. That rebellious heart. Because when Christians are given new hearts, that heart of rebellion is replaced with a heart of thankfulness and love and desire for obedience. To be sure, that new heart is still battling with sin, but it's fundamentally a new heart. The sin, the sin of rebellion against God that we see brought into the world in Genesis 3. Now we've asked and answered two basic questions. So far, so good. But there's a third question that's even more important. And yet that question cannot be asked until you ask the first two. Who is Jesus and what did Jesus come to do? Now people are always asking, and they're asking me sometimes, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Um, sometimes I'm scared of that question because I, I say, oh man, am I, am I going to just give this person a list of things to do? Are they going to take that list and try to become right with God? Uh, sometimes I'm afraid, but you know what? Scripture is, is pretty clear. I mean, Jesus himself, as he announces his public ministry in, John, in Mark 1, 14, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the good news. He's calling us to do something. To repent and to believe. So people are asking, what am I supposed to do? Well, John the Baptist gives us an answer here. But this answer is easy. Easy to overlook. It's easy to miss. And it's found in the first word of this stunning announcement the answer my friends is simple behold look see observe watch behold in other words the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said look at that man put your eyes on him behold him The answer is simple. Behold. The answer is also lifelong. It was good yesterday. It's good today. It'll be good tomorrow. And one day it'll be fully and perfectly able to be done. Because we will have clear vision. No more cataracts. No more contact lenses. No more glasses. We will see clearly Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, J.C. Ryle, in looking at this passage, says this. Let us serve him faithfully as our master. Speaking of Jesus. 
Let us obey him loyally as our king. Let us study his teaching as our prophet. Let us walk diligently after him as our example. Let us look anxiously for him as our coming redeemer of body as well as soul. But above all, let us prize him as our sacrifice and rest our whole weight on his death as an atonement for sin. Let his blood be more precious in our eyes every year we live. Whatever else we glory in about Christ, let us glory above all things his cross. This is the cornerstone. This is the citadel. This is the root of true Christian theology. We can know nothing rightly about Christ until we see him with John the Baptist eyes and can rejoice in him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The answer is simple. The answer is lifelong. And the answer is both our task and God's gift. It's what we're called to do. It's what we're commanded to do. And yet, God opens our eyes. God has to open our eyes. Remember, the world can't see Jesus. They don't recognize him. The religious don't want to see Jesus. On the one hand, people are born blind. On the other hand, they've blinded themselves. And yet, to all who believed in his name, right, To all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, God removed the blindness to see Jesus for who he is. The great church father Augustine said this, command what you will and will what you command. In other words, I'm told to behold the Lamb of God, God open my eyes to do that. Otherwise, I remain in my blindness. So here's a question I've got to ask all of us, and I'm asking myself. Do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to see him? For who he is? For what he came to do? I've often said, when any of us calls out to God for help, God will answer in one way or another. I think this is another prayer. Lord, God, I want to see Jesus. Do you? Well, one more question that circles back to where we began. How do you manage your guilt? What are you doing right now about the guilt of your sin? My friends, the guilt can't be managed. Rather, it has to be eliminated. It has to be eliminated through the person and work of Jesus. There's no other way. Therefore, let us look to, let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the author and finisher of our faith. You see, some of us right now have objective guilt. We are really guilty. You know what the answer is? Look to Jesus. Behold the Lamb. But some of us are dealing with subjective guilt. We've acknowledged our sin. We've asked for forgiveness. And yet, 
If God really knew, there's no way. I've been too bad in my past. I'm really bad right now in my present. My friends, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we believe it or not? So if you're dealing with objective guilt, you really are guilty, look to Jesus. But if you're dealing with subjective guilt, that the enemy of God has got you in a bind saying, there's no way God could forgive you. My friends, if that's what you're dealing with as well, it's the same answer. Look to Jesus. Robert Murray McShane, who only lived 30 years, he was a Presbyterian pastor in Scotland, said this, and most of us have heard this, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. In other words, yes, look in. Look at you. I am guilty. I am sinful. But for every one look, look to Jesus 10 times. McShane goes on to say, live near to Jesus and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hidden in the deep recesses of ocean caves? Likewise, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of these depths. Oh, my friends, look at yourself. Yes, look in the mirror. Absolutely. But then look through the window and see the glories of Jesus Christ. You see, when we look to Jesus in faith, we receive two gifts. You know what the gifts are. Grace and peace. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan of the 16th and uh, 17th century, said this, There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. Think about that. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. Are you that person right now? And I've been there. Uh Uh-uh. There's way more sin in me than grace in Christ. Not according to scripture. There's more grace in Christ than sin in us. And Robert Lethem, who has preached from this pulpit before in the work of Christ, said, quote, By his sacrifice on the cross, Christ has brought us out of a state of enmity with God into friendship. The original fellowship that Adam enjoyed with God before the fall has been restored. We are now at peace. By faith in Christ, we have grace and peace. Two gifts. Don't wear out. Always be there for God's people. So I just want to conclude with a few comments about our sin and our Savior. You see, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Better be personalized. Behold the Lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away my sin. My sin. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, said this. You heard it a moment ago. When I was young, I was sure of many things. Now there are only two things of which I am sure. One is that I am a miserable sinner. And the other is that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior He is well taught who learns these two lessons. 
Have y'all learned those two lessons? Have I learned those two lessons? And as Jack Miller has said, the Bible is summed up in two sentences. Cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. In other words, you don't even know the half of the depth of your sin. And you really need it taken away. He also said, second, cheer up. God's grace is a lot bigger than you think it is. So, my friends here at Grace and Peace, on this last Sunday of what may have been an absolutely awful year for you. And for some of you, I'm sure it has approached awful. But here's what we need to hear from God's word today. Cheer up. For Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God and the Son of God, the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit, who gives you a new heart, who unites you fully and finally and forever in an unbreakable union and communion with your Creator. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God and the Son of God, He takes away your sin. There's no guilt management system. There's only a person. And it's Jesus Christ. Turn to Him and live. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we were so wicked and sinful that Jesus had to die for us. And yet, Father, we also acknowledge that we are so loved and treasured that Jesus was glad to die for us. Indeed, those who believe and trust in Jesus are the joy set before Him as He headed to the cross. Father, we are so thankful that Jesus took your curse so that we could receive your blessing. What an amazing exchange as Jesus is both our substitute and our sacrifice. Oh, Father, may your word that we have just heard take up residence in our life and change us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior and our risen and reigning Lord. For your glory and for the good of your people now and forever. Amen. We echo John and respond.